Today's guest says she grew up hearing the word genius a lot. It was always from her dad, and he liked to tell her that she was, in fact, no genius. This pronouncement, she said, might come in the middle of dinner, during a commercial break, or The Love Boat, which, for those of you who don't recall, The Love Boat was a very silly show, uh, or after he flopped down on the couch with The Wall Street Journal. For many young people, the constant accusation and promise that they were not smart enough could have had a significantly negative impact on how they saw themselves, their futures, indeed their entire lives. We will learn today about the impact on today's guest in just a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Pamela Brewer, welcoming you to this edition of Mind Talk, and delighted to introduce to you Dr. Angela Duckworth, who is a 2013 MacArthur Fellow. She is a professor of psychology at the University of Pennsylvania, and she is the founder and CEO of Character Lab. Professor Duckworth, welcome to Mind Talk. Thank you for having me. Now, as you talk with us today, you have a degree in biology, a degree in neuroscience, and a PhD in psychology. So you don't sound like that person your dad kept assuring you that you were as you were growing up. What happened? Well, first, I should say my dad had very high standards. He was a chemist. He worked at DuPont his whole life on automotive paint. But he himself used to say aloud that he was disappointed he didn't win a Nobel Prize in chemistry. So the accomplishments he rattled off would not be all that impressive to someone like him. Well, trust me, they are impressive to every single other person on the planet, I guarantee. I, I think that the uh, obsession that he had with you know, winning a Nobel Prize or you know, who is the greater artist, Picasso or... Matisse. I mean, it, it did, I think, give me an interest in super high achievement. But actually, most of my work is just about how any of us, whoever we are, whatever opportunities or talents we might have, you know, how can we be the best person that we can be? And I actually think that's a much healthier way of thinking about achievement. Not, you know, are you going to win the Nobel Prize? But, you know, today is a, say, it's a Wednesday, you know, am I going to have a Wednesday that is a better Wednesday for me than Tuesday was? And, you know, as you heard me say earlier, for some children, hearing that that sort of constant um, constant language from your dad would really have had a very negative impact and would really have taken that child down a, a unfortunate path because they would believe what their dad was telling them whether their dad was saying it or whether anyone was saying it out of a sense to embolden them, to motivate, whatever the reason was for saying it, for many children hearing it would have had seriously detrimental effects. What was different about you? I ask this question all the time, and I will tell you what I think today, but I I don't have a completely satisfying answer you know, think back in your own life. I mean, anybody can do this. A time where people said, you know, you're not good enough, or I don't think you're going to make it, or, you know, I'm going to cut you from the team, or, you know, I don't really think you should major in this. We've all had that happen to us. And I think there are two reactions that you could potentially take. One is the one I took, which is, you know, I'll show you. I actually call it the I'll show you response, because that is that is exactly what goes through your head. You know, you don't think I can do this. I'm going to show you that I can. I had that rebellious response to my own father, and I've had it 
many times since then. But I think in a way, the more understandable response is that, you know, you say, okay, you're right. Right. And, and that, you know, is the way a lot of people respond to, you know, I don't think you can do this. Okay. You're right. Where, where we fall off on that knife edge, you know, whether we, you know, have the rebellious response or the I'll give in, you know, yeah, I guess you're right. I don't fully know, but I think a lot of it comes from having small wins in your, your past small victories, you know, things that built your confidence that make you on that momentous occasion where someone says, you know, I don't think you can do this. You feel like they're wrong and you're right. You, the, the book that you have written that we're here discussing today is entitled Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance. What is grit? Is that something you had? Grit? I, I think that it was something that I was developing. And I, when I talk about grit, I do describe it as this combination of, of passion, you know, loving something, um, and perseverance, you know, being a hard worker and being resilient over the long term. I think that's what sets grit apart from, you know, just being like a conscientious person, that when you have grit, you really stick with something over the long term. You, you stay in love with it and you keep working hard um, and you come back after, after setbacks. Did I have it when I was you know, a six-year-old girl, or did I have it when I was 18 and about to go to college? I mean, I think the thing about grit and so many things that we want to um, have in ourselves, it's, it's not an either you have it or you don't, but actually, like, how are you developing it and where are you now? I think I have more grit today, age 48, um, than I did when I was, uh, you know, a younger woman and that when I was a little girl. So I think I was developing grit, and I think a lot of the work that I want to shine a light on is how people are constantly developing and they develop actually across all of all of the lifespan i mean however old you are today you know you are a work in progress the the fact that um one continues to grow and continues to be a work in progress I would suggest is really hopeful. It's true in my view, but it's also really hopeful and really powerful for people. And certainly if there's someone listening today who's saying, oh, you know, I can't make it. I didn't make it. It's a reminder that there is literally always a way to do something different. I think that optimism about what the future could hold for us is so um important. And, you know, we find that gritty people tend to be more optimistic people in that sense. And it's not that you're waiting for everything to turn out well, just the forces of nature or luck. It's actually that you're thinking about what you can do to make that future happen, but always believing that there's something and something in any situation that, you know, you might be able to have some control over. So let's talk a little bit about the grit scale. What are some of the questions that are asked and uh, what are some of the things that you're looking for in the responses? We're going to pick it up after the break, but I think it's really important for people to understand, first of all, that the grit scale in and of itself is uh, 10 questions, so it's not... Uh, it's not a huge, big thing to deal with, but it can really give you some very interesting, very uh, insightful, I would say, 
ways to understand yourself. And this is not a scale, if you will, about what's right or what's wrong. It's simply a scale about who you are and what matters to you. So we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we will continue with Dr. Angela Duckworth, who is the author of Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance, and learn a little bit more about the grit scale. Don't go away, folks. Angela, tell us a little bit about the GRIT scale. What are some of the questions? How is it laid out? I developed the GRIT scale. It's a simple self-report questionnaire. You read these 10 statements. If you take the 10-item version, there are shorter and longer ones. Um, And you just, for a moment, reflect on how true that statement is for you. So, for example, I finish whatever I begin, or I'm a a hard worker. Um, These are actually from interviews that I had done with very high achievers at the very beginning of my research on grit. And I tried to condense their stories and their observations of other high achievers in their domains. I mean, I've interviewed artists and politicians and lawyers um, and tried to figure out like, what's the common denominator of, of these um, you know, people who end up doing great things. So you can take the grit scale and um, I think get a little insight into, you know, where you feel like, yeah, I'm I'm actually, you know, where I want to be on, say, hard work or finishing, but maybe on other items that are about, say, you know, having a passion that you're consistently interested in over time that you don't get bored with. You know, maybe maybe that's where I need to work. So it's really a a kind of a mirror that you can look in and, um, you know, uh, you, you do what you want then with the information that you get from it. And, you know, as I'm looking at it, and I have the 10-question version in front of me, the the questions are very simple, very straightforward. I finish whatever I begin. You've got five choices. Uh, I am diligent. I never give up. Again, five choices. So at the end of this 10, or you said that there are those that are shorter and longer, at the end of you are taking the scale, what does it reflect? What does it tell you about you? I think that for um, the people who, you know, take this, it's, it's, uh, and by the way, I developed it as a researcher. I wasn't actually thinking of it as a, you know, self-improvement tool. I was just thinking about collecting data at places like West Point, Uh, you know, cadets would take the scale and they would never even see their scores. And then I would just wait around to see, you know, who finished West Point. And I would find things like the higher the grit score, the more likely they were to finish their training. Um, it was a soccer coach named Anson Dorrance who coaches the um, UNC women's soccer team. I think he's among the highest um, uh, success rate NCAA, even more championships in the NCAA than maybe any other coach. He said, you know, I've been actually giving this to my players uh, so that they could just reflect on, on where they are. So maybe I will channel his response to this um, idea. You know, I think the idea that self-awareness and some reflection um, and some guided self-reflection. So if I just asked you to go and like reflect on your grit, I think it's it's too abstract. I mean, I think, you know, you're like, OK, uh, I don't know. But when you see these very specific statements and you're like, oh, well, that. OK, yeah. You know, how how um, you know, how hard a worker have I been? Have I really been training uh, my weaknesses? Have I been looking for feedback? You know, it just gets you a little farther. 
what most people I think then do with that reflection is to say, oh, you know what, now this, this is a, you know, a way for me to start thinking about what I want to improve. Um, and also to take stock of my assets, right? Like, you know, I'm really proud of how I'm doing on some of these items. So I think that's how I would approach not just grit, but, you know, other things that people want to be like curious or, or grateful, you know, it, it all begins with self-awareness. Well, is there a difference between obsession and grit? I mean, I can see places where they might both look like the same to uh, to someone looking on. I think the expression that so many people that I have studied use is that um, their passion is a voluntary obsession. And there is a bit of, um, you know, contradiction in those terms, right? I mean, to be obsessed by something is to, in some ways, be captivated by it involuntarily. But by voluntary obsession, I think these high performers are are communicating to me that it does feel like a um, like a romance, or it's like it's got you in its grips. Um, I mean, I see psychology everywhere. I go to Starbucks, I'm waiting in line, you know, I'm thinking about the motivation of the barista, like, you know, I'm at a traffic light, somebody makes an illegal turn, I think to myself, like, why did they do that? Because I'm a psychologist, I see it everywhere. I'm sure for you, you see your work everywhere, like everything might be, you know, a story and like, you know, you're very sensitive to these things, you don't turn it off. Um, And I think that idea of being voluntarily obsessed to to be kind of captivated by something and in some ways it feels like it's outside of your control but you're you're so happy that that this is an obsession of yours i think that's the kind of um um of passion that drives someone to think about something you know not just between nine and five but on the weekends you know when i wake up in the middle of the night to you know get a drink of water go to the bathroom i am like literally thinking about psychology in my head and and um and I wouldn't have it any other way. Is there a correlation between happiness and grit? Sounds like you've just made one. There is. We do find a very strong relationship that people who are happier on average are grittier and the people who are grittier are on average happier. You know, it doesn't mean that it's one-to-one. It doesn't mean that there aren't some happy people out there who aren't gritty. Uh, it doesn't mean that there aren't some gritty people who aren't miserable. But in general, there is a very strong trend. Um, I think in part it is because that uh, the gratification that one can have with, you know, really um, having a craft. I mean, I think the word pride is a very interesting word these days. I mean, you know, some of us would think like, oh, we're not supposed to be proud. It's not a good thing. But I am proud of my work. And I think the people that I study who can look me in the eye and say, you know, one chef, you know, award-winning chef, um, highest rated restaurant in the city of Philadelphia, you know, he looks me in the eye and he says, I can cook. And there's a pride, I mean, decades of his life to, to refining and refining his craft. And he's never done, you know, the quest for excellence, you know, always trying to be better. That is a very satisfying way, at least for the people that I studied, they want to live their life that way. And I think that is uh, a large part, you know, not the only part of his life, but a large part of his, the gratification that he gets from being alive. When you talk about grit, it it sounds like you're talking about people who have the ability to stick to whatever it is that they're doing for a long period of time, almost no matter what. I mean, there are ups and downs, but they don't lose sight of of their passion, if you will. So then, how do given that longevity is is perhaps one of the signs of grittiness? How do you explain your findings that adults who earned 
degrees from two-year colleges scored slightly higher on the grit scale than the graduates of the four-year colleges who actually stayed in school longer. You know, I have found that pattern that, you know, two-year colleges um, and the graduates of those, you know, seem to be, you know, if you look at the graph, like at least as gritty, if not grittier than, you know, college graduates. I mean, they're kind of like up there with like PhDs and law school graduates, medical school graduates, you know, what's going on there. Um, so I, I, I don't know for sure, but here is a guess. I've actually spoken um, to people who teach in community colleges or have gone to community colleges and graduated. And as you may know, I mean, in general, these institutions have like astronomically high dropout rates. Um, you know, most people who start out in community college do not graduate community college. So maybe that just, you know, the, the people who do graduate, you know, against all odds, um, these tend to be adults who are returning, you know, they're, they're not like, uh, you know, going to rolling campuses with, you know, hills and, and, you know, these are not people of privilege generally, that if you can make it out of these institutions with your diploma, it means that you, you did have a lot of passion and perseverance um, for the school. So, so it may be, that feature that this is a very hard thing to do and the odds are against you and that the people who do beat the odds are especially gritty. That's one possibility. You uh, quote Will Smith, um, the actor, uh, when he talks about what his life has been like and talent versus uh, grittiness, perhaps. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Will Smith is, I like to say, my favorite psychologist because in addition to being a, a Grammy award-winning musician and an Oscar-nominated actor, he's so perceptive about human nature, and he says these things, and I think, wow, he's, he's absolutely right. Um, he's made the distinction between talent and skill, and he says, look, a lot of people you know, use these words like they're the same thing, um, but they're different. You know, talent you get, you know, like it's like a gift, um, uh, but but skill you have to earn through hours and hours of feeding on your craft, to use words um, that are exactly uh, from Will Smith. And in fact, we have done scientific research recently, it's not yet published, that suggests that um, he's first of all correct that people use these terms synonymously. About half of the people, when you say like, hey, what's another word for talent, will actually say skill. Or if you say like, hey, what's another word for skill? They say talent. So they're just using them like as if they're the same thing. But, um, but Will's also right that it's important to make that distinction because when I say to you that your child is talented um, or that there is somebody that you could hire who's really talented, it comes with all these associations, you know, being gifted, being innately good at something. Um, when I say it's, uh, it's a skilled child or that this applicant is very skilled, you immediately think about effort, about, you know, what they did to practice and to get better. And so for those reasons, I think there are some teachers that I know who try not to use the word uh, talent. In fact, there's a piano teacher um, who uh, says she calls it the T word because she doesn't want those, you know, those associations of like it's gifted, it's innate, um, there's nothing you can do if you don't have it. Um, and I, I agree that this word talent can be problematic when misinterpreted. Well, you know, as as you're describing it that way, it, it certainly makes perfect sense. Um, because clearly, if somebody tells you that this is just, you know, you were just born with this gift, that's great for you, uh, but maybe not so great for the person who doesn't feel born with the gift. Or if you're told that, you may feel that you have an impossible dream to live up to that you're just not able to navigate. 
this, you know, idea of um, giftedness, it really cuts both ways. I mean, on the one hand, many of us remember our elementary school days when, depending on the school you went to, I mean, if it was a public school, you, you very likely had a gifted and talented program in your school. And, you know, odds are you weren't in it, right? Because it was just for a small number of boys and girls, um, while the rest of the kids just sat there and these boys and girls who were called gifted and talented would, you know, walk down the hallway and get enrichment activities. I mean, on the one hand, if you are not in the gifted and talented program, I think it does make you, you know, I think wonder about what limitations you have on what you're going to eventually accomplish. On the other hand, I think the um, label of being gifted and talented can be a curse in a sense because these are kids who very often grow up to be like scared to death of showing people what they really are, which is like, you know, sometimes they don't get the problem or they, they don't feel smart or they've made mistakes. So I, I do feel like these labels, especially when we apply them to children, you know, who are like seven or eight years old, you know, some diagnosis of what they're eventually going to do. I mean, it is very much like my dad's telling me that I wasn't a genius. Why would we do that? Why don't we just let kids, you know, learn as much as they can learn and not try to um, predict or set limits or ceilings on what they will eventually accomplish? Which is, as you know, is so hard for so many parents, for so many people. In in the case of someone who perhaps up until X time in, in his or her life really didn't seem to have a whole lot of grit. They just kind of were doing their life and it wasn't a big deal. But then something happens, whether it's an emotional trauma a physical trauma, something happens that changes how they see themselves in their world. Is that an example of grit? We're going to take a break, but when we come back, I'd like to pick up with that notion that trauma may or may not have an impact on grit and what your thoughts are about that. Folks, this is Pamela Brewer. You are listening to Mind Talk, and I am having a conversation with Dr. Angela Duckworth, who is the author of Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance. We'll be right back. Angela, as I said before the break, I, I'm thinking about someone who, up until having a um, an illness, uh, the person that I'm thinking about, really was just kind of floating mm. through life, not doing a whole lot of mm-hmm. anything wrong, anything right, just sort of floating. Had an illness, um, and as a result of that illness, was uh, uh, paralyzed, was a quadriplegic. And as a quadriplegic... Mm went to school, went to another school, opened up a business, and really developed quite a name for himself. Is Can you not have grit at some point in your life and then develop it after a trauma or some significant moment in your life? I have definitely um, heard anecdotal stories. I mean, J.K. Rowling tells one in her commencement speech to Harvard, I mean, after the Harry Potter jokes, um, 
about hitting bottom, right? It's like almost like, you know, you dive into a pool with like you and your feet hit the bottom and you push off the bottom. Um, and, you know, there's definitely, um, you know, other people who have had a serious illness and they feel like it gave them the perspective. I mean, first of all, it's a reminder that we don't live forever. None of us live forever. And those men are, you know, you're the richest person in the world. You're still not going to live forever. So I do think that there can be life events that really just jolt us into a kind of level of self-awareness that we didn't have. Um, but I also want to make a careful distinction between that kind of you know, epiphany or the sort of like, wow, you know, kind of life just shakes you by the lapels and you wake up a little bit from trauma in the sense of, you know, um, when children are abused or, you know, real poverty or yes. like uh, the kind of, you know, trauma that we wouldn't wish upon anybody, um, certainly not our own children, but really anyone else. Because in general, you know, real trauma um, uh, in general actually is bad. I mean, I think that we like this quote that Nietzsche gave us, you know, the 19th century German philosopher said, um, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger, um, which, you know, then later got repeated by Kanye West and Kelly Clarkson um, musically. But, but I think it's really important to realize that, you know, though we need to be challenged to grow, so it is true that what doesn't kill us makes us stronger because we can grow from it. You know, that day that you, um, you know, go out for a team and you're scared and you make yourself do it and, you know, you realize you can do it. Those are all true stories. J.K. Rowling, you know, went through a lot. It did make her a stronger person. But I also think it's important to realize, like, let's not romanticize, like, poverty. Or, you right. Know, Absolutely. Being, um, you know, like, right. Like, so, so, so these things are nuanced. I think what we want for all people is the same thing. We want challenge, but reasonable doses, not massive doses of challenge, um, not debilitating doses. And then the crucial thing is support, because challenge without support does not lead to growth. You know, when you do something really hard and you have somebody who's like rooting for you, it's entirely different than if you're doing something and there's nobody who's looking out for you. So challenge and support is the, the universal recipe for growth. And I think it's what I hope for my own children and I hope for, you know, really everyone's children. Is there a genetic component to grit? There is. Um, there have been twin studies that show that, you know, two twins who are raised in different homes, you know, that they're adopted, that they will end up being, um, you know, on average, a little more similar in their grit than anything else. But the important thing to realize is that this is true of literally everything that is studied um, medically or psychologically. So, yes, there's a genetic tendency that you inherit from the DNA you got from your biological mom and dad, but that is true for your extroversion, your religious beliefs, whether you like chicken, whether you are, you know, somebody who wants to go out on a Friday night, you know, it's, it's true of all aspects of human nature. And so the part of the story that I think bears, you know, emphasizing is that there's also a role for environment and experience, you know, being mentored, being given opportunities, seeing role models. Um, so I think that's the part of the story that I think is, is what you can do something about. You're not going to change your DNA. It's the part that I like to spend most of my time studying. There's a uh, comment on uh, the uh, a review that was written, uh, and the person says that this is Daniel Gilbert, author of Stumbling on Happiness. He says that you have found uh, the secret of success. Do you have to have grit in order to be successful? I think it is, um, to me, um, 
uh, not the only thing that you need to be successful for sure, right? Luck matters, opportunity matters. And by the way, things like emotional intelligence, curiosity, I mean, grit is not the only thing that you need to be successful. But I do think that to accomplish something of enduring significance, you know, if you really want to change the world or really change things for your family, that um, you cannot do it without some level of passion and perseverance. So success is not just the story of grit, but it is absolutely the story of grit. Can you let us know where people can find out more about what you're doing and grit and all these things that you're working on and interested in? I have a nonprofit called characterlab.org, and we put up a grit playbook this week that is completely free. It's all supported by foundations and individuals. We also have a playbook on gratitude, on self-control, one on curiosity, and there's more to come. So if you really are interested in developing these character strengths in yourself and especially in young people, I encourage you to visit us at characterlab.org. And can we find out information about uh, grit as well? about the book. Absolutely. You can, but I think the um, website really emphasizes things that are uh, free and downloadable for everyone without any charge. Wonderful. All right. Angela Duckworth, author of Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you. I love this conversation. (laughs) And folks, thank you for joining me on this edition of Mind Talk. Mind Talk is brought to you daily as an educational public service. It is not intended to replace any work that you may choose to do with a medical, mental health, or other professional. Mind Talk is available on demand by going to mindtalk.org. While you're at mindtalk.org, you can sign up for the weekly program guide. You can also sign up for the weekly free giveaway. And all of that is at M-Y-N-D-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. I'd love to know where in the world you are as you're listening to Mind Talk today. So do email me at Pamela at MindTalk.org. That's P-A-M-E-L-A. And of course, it's M-Y-N-D-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. Mind Talk is produced by Jim Brown and 26 by 2 Communications. And folks, remember always, if it's unacceptable, it's unacceptable. Take care. Thank you.